0: As we're wrapping up Pride month, I wanted to reshare this tribute to my late uncle Stuart Joy, who died of AIDS in 1988. A couple years ago, my good friend Brooke and I had a chance to meet and have a first conversation with Stuart's partner up until his death, John Asher, and both of them are so incredibly dear to us. I know anyone who's been my pal for a while has seen this before, so I thank you guys for your indulgence. I Just hate to let pride go by without a little personal reminder of how far we have come and how far we have to go and also what's at stake when bigotry runs policy so uh with that said happy pride!
1: connected and the reason why we take care of the most vulnerable is because we are stronger when we take care of the most vulnerable.
0: That's one of the many That's how reasons. you judge a society, right? How it treats its old people and children, right? Ay oh, yeah, yeah. Well, even though HIV is no longer a death sentence and it's certainly not guaranteed to turn into AIDS and we know a lot more about transmission and, and how to prevent it, that was not the case in the early 1980s. My family, the Joy family, was the quintessential big conservative Catholic family. They lived in New York. They actively campaigned for Ronald Reagan, among others. Um, My mom was the youngest of seven kids. Her youngest older brother was two years older than her, and that was Stuart. The family was thrust into the center of the HIV-AIDS crisis.
1: It literally brought the issue home.
0: Yes, it did. So...
1: Stuart Alexander Joy was a visual artist and creative who was born in Brooklyn in 1958. He was driven and vivacious. He paled around with Debbie Harry at Studio 54 in New York City in 1986, a year before Ronald Reagan even spoke the word AIDS publicly. Stuart was diagnosed with a virus that would kill him two years later at the age of 30. He was one of the many lives lost to AIDS in the early years of the AIDS crisis, when the government and society at large refused to acknowledge the reality of the widespread epidemic.
0: So uh, we got a chance to meet for the first time and discuss this with somebody who lived it. So uh, without further ado, here is John Asher.
2: Look, I I think because I was in the arts, I kind of believe in like letting it just play and roll okay. and play out. No limitations Great. as far as creativity. I think yeah. if you start off with limitations initially, yeah. the rose doesn't get to bloom fully. Like so let Okay. Hi, Mackenzie and hi, Brooke. It's a pleasure hi. to okay. have this conversation with you guys. So um, we're seeing each other through Skype, which is sort of nice um, <sighs> because I've never really officially met you, Mackenzie, uh, although yeah. I'm in a bizarre, distant way... Related, that's an air quote to you. I know your mom and your mom's family, the Joy family, from back in the early 1980s when I met your uncle, Stuart. Um, We were both working at a department store. I was still in college, um, and your uncle had just graduated from Duke University. And so um, I would see him... Throughout the store, walking around, or you know, walking past the department, and I say, "Oh, that he's cute guy." And eventually, we just started having conversation, and we both decided, "Yeah, let's go out and have a drink," which we did. And one thing led to another, and suddenly, I had a boyfriend, and I was involved with Stuart Alexander Joy. So that goes back to like 1981. By 1983, we decided to move in together. And he was living at home with his parents, your family. (laughs) Um, And so we, in 1983, we got our first apartment on the corner. It was on 435 East 76th Street, small one-bedroom but charming, and it was a rent-stabilized apartment. Oh my gosh. Super low rent, and- It's um, the gold so, mine in New York. Oh, God. Yeah, which is really hard to find in New York. I don't know if those deals exist anymore, but we had one. We had a really great, uh, sweet apartment, and again, we fixed that place up, and um, you know, we're living as a gay couple in new york well i meant um, to
0: ask when you and Stuart moved in together how did you couch that to your respective families because i know my family was very conservative they were catholic my grandfather was the head of the conservative party on long island at one point so obviously good people i i love them but i think until certainly until the end of Stuart's life they didn't fully acknowledge it as far as i know so yes. i'd be interested to know what your experience was and i i Understand that you came from a conservative family yourself.
2: I came from a conservative family as well, um, a Republican family, conservative points of view. Also Catholic. In fact, yes. the joke was your grandmother would always say, "You know, why aren't any of these girls anyone bring home a nice Catholic boys?" So, so Stuart
0: did. Like were the only, only one. Thing, yeah. So there you go.
2: There was a nice Catholic boy brought into the family. You're welcome, joy family. Nice, he was a nice. Catholic gay boys. <laughs> <So, Yeah. laughs> there's a little curveball in there um, so uh, yes everyone was kind of conservative and so when we decided to move in um, we always spoke in terms of roommates mm. yes Stuart was my roommate
0: I thought that for a long time I think my aunt believed what Stuart had told her which is that it was a one bedroom but that you rotated who slept on the couch <laughs> <amongst Yeah>. my- <laughs> come on Really? (laughs) But uh, I guess you believe what you want to believe.
2: Absolutely. This is true. So we did move in together. And um, back in the early 1980s, there was what was deemed the gay plague. Mm -hmm. That was Mm -hmm. sort of you would hear about and read about and hear about this up and coming disease. And initially, it was a disease that had only affected homosexuals hemophiliacs, supposedly horses and Haitians I you know so that's early it's that's so really specific it's very strange it is very specific and very strange but what, I don't know how Haitians and horses got thrown in there but you know it was a it was a disease that was affecting a certain part of society and a certain people that you know not too many people paid attention to because again homosexually were thought of as an illness
0: yeah, at that right.
2: point in time, and earlier, it was almost against the law. I think at one it point was in certainly well, in yes. The
0: cases that struck down those laws are late 90s in a Supreme Court setting. But there was a Texas law I know that was addressed in a case that uh, it outlawed sodomy, and it was only enforced, of course, against gay men. But that was struck down, I think, in the 90s. So it was wow. against the law in some places. <laughs> wow. Yeah.
2: So again, it was because it was affecting only a certain segment, what was deemed as maybe an undesirable or an unimportant group of people that, you know, people didn't pay too much attention to. But the CDC was aware of this. Mm-hmm. So it was brought up to the Reagan administration. I don't know whether I should go into my own personal part of this now. Maybe
0: Brooke. Brooke did some research that actually might segue well into the years that certain things happened with Stuart. Yeah. So I believe what you were talking about with the Reagan
1: administration being approached with the issue, there was a press conference in 82 uh, where a reporter was talking to Larry Speaks, who was the uh, press secretary at the time. Yes. He brought it up and it was laughed at
2: does the President have
0: any reaction. Now the Center for Disease Control of Atlanta, the AIDS, is now an epidemic in over 600 cases. It's known as gay plague. <laughs> <laughs> no, it is. I mean, yeah, it's a pretty serious thing. That one in every three people that get it have died. And I wondered if the president is aware of it.
2: I don't have it. Are you? Do you? You don't have it. Well, I'm relieved to hear that. Well, I you. Do you? You don't. Do the numbers How do you know? The president. The White House looked on. This is a great joke. No, I don't know anything about it,
1: man. Then it was brought up again in '84, and of course by that time there had been thousands of deaths. Yeah, I think yeah. Like five thousand, over five thousand deaths. And when it was brought up again, it was they were making jokes about it and getting really yes. defensive.
2: About this subject, Larry. That has led to a
0: lot of controversy
2: reaction here. I, you know, it isn't always a good thing. Is he going to do anything, Larry? That I've not heard him express
1: anything. Sorry. No, I've expressed no opinion about this epidemic. No, but I must confess, I have asked him about. Would you ask him, Larry? Go back into the closet. And that was, in, uh, I believe, '84. This is after thousands of people, um, you know many more cases but thousands of people had already died and uh it was being it was a joke in the it, it was in the press even caring
0: about House. it was a joke it, and it, it was also if you think about how many folks knew and this can kind of transition us to your experience with it
2: you're absolutely correct in terms of the press conference when it was brought up in a press conference and asked about was it, whether uh president reagan was aware of um, this disease that was affecting a certain population in the United States. It was sort of laughed at and snickered and hmm. put back on the, the reporter who had asked the question, you know, it was kind of like it was bad, dirty, or it might implicate that you might be gay. Well, um, <laughs> and yeah, uh, that, you know, it's almost like all aspects of society weren't acknowledging it, so the administration wasn't going to acknowledge okay. it.
1: I think it's also it's a good example of how dangerous shame and stigma and an anti-science view of something right. can be. Because through line. Because it, it really marginalizes people who are suffering When again, like you said, there wasn't a lot of concern in this society at large, and so the administration reflected that, but that caused it to blow up because there was a stigma around it. Mm -hmm. It's just, and I think Reagan really paved the way
0: for the weird moralistic politicizing of anti science, yeah, yeah, so yes,
2: and that's why the message from the top is an important one, yes, because even smart, educated people hear what they want to hear or hear certain things that come from the most important person in the world. I'll deem him as that.
1: To move it back to your personal experience with it, um, I guess we can talk about uh, when Stuart was diagnosed. Sure. Or... And
0: uh, if we're talking about the 84 press conference, I that's think that's an off point. Yeah, that's certainly when my aunt Allie was married in 85, and my family said that Stuart was different to their eyes. Yes.
2: So. so your uncle was fashion designer, handbags and belts. Mm-hmm. I was a shoe designer. Um, so in 1984, when we had moved into um, our second apartment, Stuart was working with Liz Claiborne.
0: Mm, actually where wearing B- at now. <laughs> oh, for crying designs. out loud. Yeah.
2: <laughs> um, he was working for Liz Claiborne and traveling the world and in a, a, a job that he loved. But, you know, in 1984, he started saying how he was tired a lot of the time, exhausted, you know, we thought, Nothing of it because he deemed it as, well, he travels the world. He's got jet lag, always working really late hours. And Stuart had a bit of a wild side in him, though. So when he would go out, he would really go out and have a great time and sometimes <laughs> not come home. And yeah. so we, you know, you know, just never putting, sometimes when there's, Where there's smoke, there's fire. But you never put the pieces. I never put the pieces of the puzzle together. Sure. We're being a little bit wild and being out and not coming home certain times. And then when he was working, how when he was home, how he was not feeling well and tired. Um, And this went on for a few years until 1986, when um, he started getting fevers Mm. and very, very bad night sweats. And um, something just clearly wasn't right. And we went to the emergency room. And um, that's when I guess he spoke. I mean, I wasn't allowed in because it wasn't deemed family. Hmm. So he was in with the doctor. And I guess they did some tests and, you know, through conversation, not that you would get immediate results, but they were indicating that that was indeed the case. And and then I remember him coming home saying that he was HIV positive. And I was really just, you know, I felt like the rug was pulled out from underneath my feet. Yeah. It was really, um, and of course, very concerned for Stuart, but then I was also very concerned for myself because I was you know, kind of a victim of circumstance.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um,
2: You know, uh, so that was brought into our household, and as I said earlier, um, if you were deemed as HIV positive, you, at that point in time, there were no cures, there were no real drugs, it was still so new that um, it was like, okay, you got this, and usually you start the clock, and two years or less is what your life sentence becomes
1: even at that point. So if 86, um, the administration had been aware, I believe since '83, and so little money or resources were allocated toward treatment or research. So of course there wasn't, you know, a cure or treatment because nothing had been done about it for three years.
2: That is very true. Brooke. Yes. And so, um, was a very scary position to be in. And I was, 24, 25, 26 years old, you know, starting working and, you know, not really having a, a lot of money between us. August or September of 1986, I think.
0: My mom had told us about a conversation that she had with him out in Arizona, and it was before a formal diagnosis and he said, I think I have this rash in my mouth. And it, it was oral thrush. And it was so obviously oral thrush to her, which uh, for anybody who doesn't know is a fungal infection that was a real marker at the time of um, HIV specifically because it, it preys on a weak immune system.
2: And that you don't correct. really
0: see young people getting that. That is so correct, yes. My mom said that looking, because she was nurse, she she was looking in his mouth and she knew in that moment that he was probably going to die and she told him i love you you can tell me whatever you want go talk to dad because your grandpa was a physician right right and yes. he was conservative obviously but she thought i don't think dad will turn him away but he'll know what to do but Stuart didn't tell her anything specific i don't think he came out expressly at the time but he certainly not.
2: he did not again the fear
0: yeah of course and the stigma
2: yeah. And there was no cure so it wasn't like okay well if i go to the doctor and i take mm-hmm. this i'll get better uh, or if i have this procedure they'll remove it and you mm-hmm. know i've got a chance it was like there was no chance really mm-hmm. so stuart uh eventually did speak to his parents mm-hmm. um you know after he had shared with me uh, you know i was like and I know he was fearful to talk to his dad about it, your grandfather, mm-hmm. um, but he did. And I remember speaking to your grandfather, hmm. Dr. Joy, and um, you know, I know that Stu was experiencing something that was, because it attacked all aspects of your immune system. And so
0: right. um,
2: he was having pain where anything, like even, um, To have lay a sheet on top of him Mm. was excruciatingly painful. So I remember your grandfather saying he couldn't even put a sheet on him, even though he was shivering and then sweating from fever and chills. Yeah. But they somehow got him the symptoms under control for the time being. But that was just a temporary fix. Yeah. And as the disease progressed your immune system continues to break down and you become more susceptible. You know, even though he would survive that episode, was still deteriorating in other ways. And I remember being at your grandparents' house with Stuart one time and we were watching some television. I had just come over to visit and he, we were talking and all of a sudden he had a seizure, Mm. a very bad seizure. And I remember him just falling and oh. seeing his body flailing on the ground. Um, and I, was, I ran down the steps and got your grandfather and grandmother. Very scary, very frightening. Um, what did they do? Your grandfather got it under control. Mm. And then we knew that he had to go to the hospital or be Mm. further checked and i remember him because he was sitting on the edge of the bed and then when he started having the convulsion fell over and like scraped his head and was bleeding a little bit and that is very you know you couldn't be around blood because you know you could be oh
0: gosh yeah
2: and you know it was just all around scary and again we're like Young guys in our 20s, (laughs) you know, our 20s. We shouldn't be dealing with this kind of thing. Right. But somehow we were living it. It became our life, you know. Yeah.
0: How did the family handle it? Did they allow you to come over freely? Um, I know obviously they... So both of my grandparents retired to take care of Stuart, but they also... My grandmother's still conservative to this day. My grandfather was until he died. So it was kind of a cognitive dissonance that I know went further than a lot of parents did. It's just interesting, both of you being good Catholic boys, um, how was that?
2: Well, it's interesting, you know, again, going back to Catholics, where (laughs) the Catholic Church at that point in time also had Hmm. deemed homosexuals as intrinsic moral evils
0: mm, and oh, nicely put
2: <laughs> so it's like okay um yeah but your grandparents rose to the occasion i don't know what they said hm. when they were in bed together speaking about the situation but they did rise to the occasion and your grandfather expressed great concern for my health and oh, well-being. Oh,
0: okay okay um
2: and that was very kind and he had said Obviously, I have to go start being tested on a regular basis yeah. um, because you just don't know. Yeah. And he checked me out several times as far as um, one indication was the the thrush, which mm-hmm. I never had, um, swollen lymph nodes in either your neck or under your arms or in your mm-hmm. groinal area, extreme swollen mm-hmm. lymph nodes. And your grandfather would check me out. Uh, and I started going to my... Own doctor who was a gay doctor oh that's great um, <laughs> yeah um you know living in new york mm-hmm. you know i would ask friends like i didn't have a physician i had a family physician but it wasn't certainly a conversation i was comfortable having with yeah same physician that my parents and brothers of and course. sisters would go to. So I had my own physician in New York and I was tested on a regular basis, on a yearly basis for, okay. you know, supposedly the virus can live in was able to live inside of you for up to 20 years without showing.
0: Wow. Symptoms.
2: Yeah.
1: Interesting. So
2: from, you know, my mid twenties <laughs> until almost my fifties. Yeah. Like, relatively always, recent. Yeah. I mean, like, Ten, about wow. 10 years ago would always be fearful and you know as time went on the doctors say no you know because it, you know You're more doing was okay learned about doing okay for this long know, yes yeah. and I've been okay for that long but um, you know but even so every time I would go for a blood test just always living in fear was <laughs> yeah. t- a bit of torment yeah. um, but getting back to Stuart Stuart had become debilitated yeah. beyond being able to come back to the apartment because I just couldn't, yeah. you know, it would, I couldn't handle it anymore. Of course. Fair um, enough, yeah. <laughs> I didn't, you know, again, in my 20s, I just didn't know if or when something might happen. And, you know, you come from a family of doctors and nurses, right. everyone in your yeah. family.
0: They were uniquely equipped to, to yes. deal with that. Yeah. And
2: it was really necessary for him to be where someone was present all the time
0: yeah yeah. um
2: and a medical professional doctor and nurse we were lucky in that
0: sense yeah certainly
2: so um he got sick one more time and that was in the summer in july this is 1988 and he was admitted to the hospital and it was cabrini medical center Ah, which was in lower manhattan and that was the hospital that his AIDS doctor because he had a doctor that was specifically Mm
0: -hmm. involved
2: with HIV research
0: Okay. and
2: he was admitted to that hospital and got worse and worse and I remember, I don't remember who called me to tell me that he had there's a term in medical speak, code blue Hmm. and I think that's coronary arrest you have to either be resuscitated or not and they resuscitated Stuart. Mm-hmm. He was put on life support at that point with, um, uh, breathing tube, And, um, and I remember at that point in time, we just sort of knew the end was coming. Yeah. Um, and your grandmother would go every single day, every single day to visit Stuart. And I would meet her during the day, hmm. um, for a couple of hours or in the evening. And, um, I remember on, because Stuart died August 1988. I remember. And Lindsay got
0: married a couple days before. He was supposed to go to the wedding. Yes. And he had yes. that decline, right?
2: Yes. In fact, I, I, I was with him that whole day that Lindsay got huh. married. And he he was most concerned because he had, had no one had He was like, he wasn't able to shower, and his hair, he's like <laughs> a mess. And so I remember washing his hair for him. Oh. Because that was really important to him. But we knew that the end was coming. Mm-hmm. And I just remember how distraught your grandmother was.
0: God, yeah.
2: Um, and how, you know, he was on life support, and how your grandmother kept saying, like, I don't care. I don't care. He can stay this way. Oh. Um, I'll take care of him this way.
0: <sighs> she, yeah. I know that she offered to just bring him home and keep him in the attic like that. Just keep um, him... I can't, can't imagine. No, not really okay. fine, of course.
1: I can't imagine. It was just such a cruel disease. Yeah. It, like you said, as soon as someone was diagnosed, they knew that they the were... The yeah. yeah, they had Yeah, they had a limited amount of time left. Yeah. And you don't even get good time because mm-hmm. it, it just ravages Sassy. your body. And yeah. it's just such a cool. difficult you know loved one of that person
0: I can't imagine what it was like you especially yeah yeah, absolutely I I think everybody was in their own head and and in retrospect my mom has said I wish I had had the wherewithal to know
2: what what you were going through because she was just and at that point in time you know it's not even like you could say you could say like oh hi I'm Stuart's partner and I
1: could
2: hear test results or ask for information about his current condition because I Hmm. wasn't Family, so yeah. I never really knew other than what was. And your grandparents, and your sister, your sisters, your mom, and your <laughs> aunts were always. I was always aware, but it's not like I could ever ask or find out. Because but that's as good as like, it well, got. Who's kind call- of. Who's yeah, calling? I'm yeah, like, right. well, This is his partner. Like, well, you're not family. We can't reveal any information to you. So, I, I swear, I remember being in the apartment alone when he was in the hospital, and like lighting handle and keeping that burning for him because I wasn't sure if he was would oh I'd God. be able to speak with him or see him the next day and
0: Aww, what a strange um, thing
2: it was but after he was in almost a coma and just on life support we all knew it was just really it was no way out you were just down a dead end street with a brick wall in front of you, nowhere you to you don't turn come back it, doesn't no, no. It, was, it. it was really the end I remember back then there were things called um sony walkman
0: oh yes (laughs) yeah
2: and i remember putting music on and putting it on stewart's head because he loved blondie and he loved the talking heads and all good
1: all great bands um, yeah yeah
2: so i remember putting music on uh putting earphones on Mm -hmm. him whether he heard it or not, obviously, but I thought he would.
0: Yeah. Um,
2: just so that it was something that he related to and happy. Uh, I did that that night, and we all were in that room. Mm-hmm. We all stayed. He was in a private room. We all were in that room the night that he passed.
0: Yeah, I said you, her, and my grandparents were there. Yes.
2: Yes, we were there. <laughs> And we all took turns, your grandfather nodding off, oh. and your grandmother occasionally. It was close to like four, three or four in the morning when he passed. And I just. <sighs> Sorry.
0: It's okay. I take your time.
2: I remember walking out just to... <laughs> such disbelief because even though like i was saying earlier even though you know that i just could not believe it and i remember your grandparents and your mom driving me uptown Uh dropping me off at the apartment they asked did i want them to come upstairs with me um because it was the first time i was going to go into the apartment yeah And I said, no, 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 no. And I knew that your grandmother, that everyone had more or less been up almost all night long. And I just remember going upstairs Mm. in such disbelief, breaking down. God,
0: I can't imagine alone.
2: But then I was like, oh my God, I have to start to tell people the next steps when you're Catholic you know there's going to be a wake and there's going to be a funeral and what am I going to say to everybody and I hadn't really shared the truth with my family that Stuart was HIV I'd said he had leukemia you know, I had to come up with a quick one.
0: No, it's easier. It's, yeah, because
2: at one point in time, my dad was also dying at the exact same time, and my dad died. Oh my god! Um, August three months after. school. Oh. And my dad needed um, blood, and not every, he couldn't accept everyone's blood, and I had his type, so oh. I was asked to donate. My I was expected to donate blood, and I had to come and say I can't donate blood because. Well, I'm why? Not... Why can't you? And you know, it was just all around the the lying and the what did you hiding. say? I said uh, there was a possibility I was I, I, I was exposed, or you know, I was in contact with sure. something. Sure. Okay. But, you know, and mm. but I I couldn't donate blood because you, I wasn't even allowed to donate blood, even if right. I really, oh, right. I couldn't say like, yeah, of course I would have given my father blood. He needed it. So, you know, at, coming home at that point in time, saying, well, what am I going to tell my parents? Oh, Stuart had died. And what am I going to tell my friends? And, you know, and th- my close friends, like Edward was our friend. Right, Edward yeah, of course. Because
0: the family knew him as well, yeah. <laughs>
2: yes so i had a few close friends to say what had transpired but other than that i didn't know how to really share with anyone and to say like oh well in the living in fear like oh my god if my mother and my family go because mm. they knew Stuart, he was at, in our home so many times and they knew him say like Oh, my God, if so my mother and my sister, my brothers go to the wake and they find out like he was HIV and, uh, uh, you know, just again, then you're living stuck in secrecy and it, yeah. and fear, and, and, you know, and not sharing the full truth right. out of fear.
1: So you go through all this trauma and you lose someone who's deeply important to you and then you don't even get the support system. You don't even get the the ability to tell, you know, your, the people around you, your acquaintances, your uh, employers or whatever it is. Like you, you don't get right. the um, what would be expected in other situations absolutely. of that, that acknowledgement right. of your loss. Yes,
2: yeah. absolutely. that is That is true. So it's like, it's just insult to injury right. um, over and you know, over really yeah. over and over now getting back to the reagan administration huh. yeah. when the reagan administration was starting to acknowledge the presence of aids it was because ronald reagan was a former hollywood actor when you know because it was becoming more and more in the public eye about hiv liberaci who was uh-huh. Deemed as being sick because he was, you know, and he said he because he was on the watermelon diet. That's why he was. Losing what?
1: Weight. Yes. Okay. Go,
2: Google it. Google it.
1: <laughs> watermelon um, diet.
2: And also, uh, then Rock Hudson, who was a yeah. good friend of Ron and Nancy Reagan, and when he died, then there was starting to be some acknowledgement within the administration. Um, you know, because it was hitting close to home. And Anthony Fauci was, at that point in time, very involved with AIDS research. And of course, there were gay activists, you know, ACT UP and GMHC. They always embrace his points of view. Right, because there was that Larry
0: Kramer disagreement with Fauci, I believe, but they remained friends?
2: Yes, very much so. So Anthony Fauci has been around a very, very long time, and he is indeed a very smart slash brilliant doctor. (laughs)
1: <laughs> the guy just
2: keeps on ticking and going.
1: So you said that after the death of Brock Hudson and the Reagan administration started to um, acknowledge it more publicly. Did you see a, a change in how um, society approached, you know, just the general public approached uh, HIV-AIDS?
2: Yes and no, because I think until it it started becoming like everyone... Was more aware of it because it was in the news mm-hmm. and it was out there. Mm-hmm. Um, and you would hear about celebrities. And so it was becoming a bit more mainstream. It was still v- something that was very taboo and f- fearful. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, you know, it got to the point where if you, uh, I think everyone either knew of someone or had someone in their family that was gay. Or was sick. Um, mm-hmm. I shouldn't say everyone, but it just became a bit more out there. A kitchen there table
1: a, issue, more of a kitchen table issue. Yes, challenge.
2: and yeah. uh, there was greater awareness. And then hence, we'll fast forward into like the 1990s when mm-hmm. TV sitcoms like Will and Grace were on, and you know it became more commonplace to have, you know. A gay person in your living room—that's through television. <laughs> right. yeah. um, and they're like, "Oh wow, they're funny. They can dance and decorate, and Gays.
1: They're, they're professional." Just
2: like us. <laughs> no, <laughs> exactly. Um, like Will was a lawyer, and yeah. and look, t- today in 2020, you know, young kids are not afraid to come out of the closet and be their true self. Mm-hmm. Um, at a very early age. And yeah. I think that there's there's still a long way to go, yeah. but it, it has come such a long way in a short period of time. And there's still the stigma and the prejudice out there, just like to deny that there's systemic racism in this country mm-hmm, of course. is bullshit. Oh <laughs> um, no, yeah. Because there are it is parallels. Out there, yeah. And there's still homophobia out there, and there's still um, prejudiced and a lot of ignorance, a lot yeah. of ignorance. Yeah.
0: It is and, that lack of exposure and familiarity, uh, which is why I think things like bringing someone into your living room is such a powerful factor. Representation is so important yeah. in that situation. Yeah, because if you're from the Midwest and you've never met a gay person or a black person, it's, oh, it's, yeah. it's very, it's easy to fear monger if there's no familiarity yeah if your hunger turns to bubble. anger Absolutely. pretty quickly
1: something you mentioned about how quickly it's moved hmm. is something I, I wanted to ask you about because something that mackenzie and i are stunned by yeah. is how much has happened in the last you know 40 years even. and
0: really particularly the last 20 Absolutely. because obergefell was 2015? 2015 and that
1: was the gay marriage case obviously yeah. the supreme court case But even, uh, you know, you're talking about how stigmatized and uh, taboo it was in the 80s. And like you said, now everyone knows, everyone has... At least in in cities. Yeah, absolutely. What has it been like... Hmm. to live through that 40 years yeah. ago you were fearful to tell people in your life about it and and especially with uh we'll go out age, on a date like, yeah, yeah or like you couldn't go out on a date you couldn't meet people you couldn't take them home there was uh there was little or no public support for it what has it been like for you watching that change over the last
2: well, 40 years i've been very fortunate and edward as well in the fact that you no, know, we live in new york city and that has a lot to do, uh, you know, New York, any and everything goes, as you <laughs> ladies know. Um, and it's a great city and so people that. care, but they really don't care. And, yeah. um, you know, it's...
0: You're never going to be the weirdest one on the subway.
2: No. Yeah. And it's really not... A, I mean, we're fortunate in the sense that there's a big gay community there, we're accepted. It's all okay. Mm -hmm. Um, But that mentality along the East Coast and the West Coast, Mm -hmm. yes, of course, when you get into Southern states, there's still prejudice, as I was saying, but I think it's the people in that whole center of the country that, you know, lack of exposure, like you were saying, Mackenzie, and education and just not knowing the fear monger, like you were both saying. Yeah. Um, I feel bad for anyone who's gay growing up in the middle... America, because, you know, it's all okay, you know, no matter what. We all pay, we all bleed, we <laughs> pay taxes, we love our mothers. I mean, we're law-abiding citizens. We're human beings. And so yeah. it's like, it really, ultimately, should not matter who you I sleep with. Care. No, absolutely. And, yeah. wa- and it makes us no better or no less than anyone else. <laughs>